You're listening to the winning literary show, Off the Shelf Books Talk Radio, live with host Denise Turney, author of the books Long Walk Up, Portia, Love Pour Over Me, Spiral, Love Has Many Faces, and Rosetta's Great Hope. Turn up your dial and get ready for a blast of feature author interviews, 411 on book festivals, writing conferences, and so much more. Ready? Let's go. Magic is believing in yourself. If you can make that happen, you can make anything happen. And that quote is from Johann Wolfgang Van Gogh. Magic is believing in yourself. If you can make that happen, you can make anything happen. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Winning Book Podcast off the shelf. Thank you to our loyal listeners. And if this is your first time coming, you are at the right spot. You are listening once again to the Winning Book Podcast off the shelf. This is, I saw, I was doing some marketing earlier this morning. This is, they said Valentine's Day weekend for those who celebrate Valentine's Day. I hadn't even thought of that. But this is, what, Saturday, February 11th, just a few more days. And I was listening to how much money people spend on Valentine's Day. It's in the billions. It's in the billions. We can really come up with what we want to do when we really want to do something. Before I introduce you, talking about doing things, our guests, really uh, the kind of career that, I mean, keeps you popping on your toes and is sometimes in the news in bad ways, and and then there are people in it who do a lot of good work as well. But I think in his book he takes a, a bit of a comical approach to some of what he experienced. But before we introduce you to today's guest, I gotta ask you guys, how good of a mystery sleuth are you? Do you love mystery? Do you like to figure things out? And can you? Not only do you want to, but can you figure out who did something before it's revealed? Whether you're watching a documentary, whether you're watching a, a, a movie, reading a book, you always know you can spot those clues. Before it's revealed, if you love a mystery, I really think you're going to enjoy Love Pull Over Me because there's a mystery tucked in this book, and it takes a long time before it's revealed. And then if you value relationships, relationships, and when I say relationships, I mean relationships with your family, relationships with your friends, and there's a romantic relationship in the story as well. But if you just value relationships, period, and you see how we influence and impact and help each other to grow, and sometimes we keep each other stuck, sometimes we take each other in the wrong direction, but if you value this, the, the, the way we impact and influence each other, and you love a mystery as well, I really think you're going to enjoy Love Pull Over Me. I encourage you to get a copy of Love Pull Over Me. It's an ebook and print. And if you don't see it on the library shelves or in the bookstore, just ask the clerk for a copy of Love Pull Over Me by Denise Turney, and they can get it for you because it's carried by the largest book distributors in the world. And now let us go and meet our very special off-the-shelf guest. And today's guest is Vic Ferrari. Vic is a retired New York City police detective, and he makes his home in Missouri and also in New Guinea. I hope I said that right, and I don't think I did. Vic has written and published several books, including NYPD Law and Order, Grand Theft Auto, NYPD's Flying Circle, Cops Crime and Chaos, NYPD Through the Looking Glass, and this is not about the police department, I don't think this one, Confessions of a Catholic High School Graduate. We are honored to have Vic join us with us on Off the Shelf this morning. Welcome to Off the Shelf, Vic. Hey, Denise. Thank you so much for having me on your show. And, and glad, glad, and happy to to have you on. I think I hear a little bit of that a New York accent coming through in your voice. But the first few questions I'm going to ask you, I ask every guest, so our listeners can get a little backstory on our guests before I launch into talking about their books. So to kick off today's show, can you tell us where you grew up? And that's why I said I thought I heard a little New York accent. Can you tell us where you grew up and what life was like for you growing up? Sure. Um, I was born and raised in the Bronx in New York City, lower middle class kids. My dad was a butcher. Um, you know, money was tight. Growing up in uh, in New York City in the 70s and 80s, it was interesting 
there was a lot to do. Um, you know, we didn't have video games. So when I was a kid, we used to hang around by the local police station. And I was fascinated by the police cars and the cops walking in and out of the station house. I didn't have any family on the department. And uh, I was just fascinated. And on, on television, you always saw these police shows. And I like to tell the story. By age 10, my friends and I used to sneak into the post office and steal the FBI wanted posters off the wall. And then we'd go around the neighborhood conducting our own manhunts and investigations. So if you could picture a bunch of 10-year-olds walking into the local deli questioning some construction worker because he looked like a, a, a bank robbery suspect in Dallas, it was actually comical. I knew what oh I wanted to do Oh, my goodness. Oh, how so how has this? Mis- no, go ahead. No, I was a mischievous kid, and I knew what I wanted to do at an early age. So you knew because you, you where you were was close to the police station. You knew as a young kid that you you wanted to grow up and be a cop. What was it about it that attracted you to that career field? Um, I guess the uniform and on television in the 70s and 80s, it was all cop shows and detective shows and the Rockford Files and Barney Miller. And it just seemed like an interesting career choice. And uh, when I was a little boy, my grandfather went out to buy the newspaper in the snow. He broke his leg and two cops brought him home. And I mean, I was a little boy and I was just fascinated, like, by the uniforms and, like, who are these guys? What do they eat? Like, they just drive around and pick up old people that break their legs and bring them back home? Like, I was fascinated. Oh, okay. Now, are you an only child, or or, or did you grow up with siblings? I have a younger brother that actually followed me into the police department a couple years after I was hired. Wow, okay. Now, how my sister was a retired police officer and and also my ex-husband, my sister, now as a teacher, but how long did you serve on the police force, and what was it like serving on the force back when you served? Uh, I did 20 years, I, from 87 to 2007, and I had a wonderful career. I mean, I, 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 for the most part, I loved it. I mean, it, it was one of those things I knew what I wanted to do at an early age, and I found the right job for me. I mean, you have your ups and downs, right? I mean, like any job, there's going to be people you don't like or can't really don't want to work with. But overall, I mean, it was a great 20-year career. I worked in so many different units. I was in plain clothes uh, 15 out of my 20 years. I worked in the narcotics division for a while. I worked in an anti-crime team where we would try to stop crimes before they happen, like robberies in progress and burglaries. And then uh, my last 10, I was a detective in the NYPD's auto crime division. So anything with chop shops, stolen cars, exporting stolen cars out of the country, changing vehicle identification numbers uh, on, on vehicles for resale, a lot of mafia cases. So, I mean, I, I really had an interesting career. Oh, my goodness. And, you know, I heard auto thefts have actually gone up. And you, so, so many crimes, you know, you wish everybody, I think most people do do the right thing, but enough that do bad, they do it over and over and over and over again. Uh, they, how do, they can't get auto thefts and drugs. Those are the two, some things it's like you just can't seem to get a hold on it. So it goes down and stays down. Now, who or what inspires you? We know what how you what, what what encouraged you or motivated you to want to become a police officer, but who or what inspired you to pursue writing and what birthed your love for books? You know, I, I never, you know, I never thought about becoming an author when I was a member of the New York City Police Department. I retired and it was out of necessity. I I was bored. I really didn't know what to do with myself, and uh, at the urging of friends and family, they said, you know, you got all these wild, unbelievable stories from your 20-year career. Why don't you start writing them down and write a book? And I said, I don't know. Who wants, you know, I mean, who am I? I mean, that someone would be interested in me. And they said, well, just try it. And uh, I started writing these books, and I was, I was, no one was more surprised than myself, and they started selling. And it's kind of turned into, a, you know, a cottage industry for me. I, I see him. <laughs> I see him when I was doing the research for this interview, and I'm like, "Oh my goodness!" So I thought maybe you were writing like all along uh, in your career, but, but you were looking for something to do, so you were encouraged by your family. Now, are these NYPD books, Vic? Are they part autobiographical? And if so, how so? 
so when I, I when I was going to write these books, the two things that I said I didn't want to do was get someone divorced or embarrassed and fired. So I changed the names, the dates, the locations, the ranks. I might move a character from one story to another. But the genesis for all these stories is something that either happened to me or one of my coworkers or is a famous story about the NYPD. The average person picking up the book is going to find it fascinating but if you worked in the New York City Police Department during that time period, you might, know, you might know who I'm talking about because of the rank or something someone said that, you know, it's like NYPD ur- urban legends. Oh, my goodness. So introduce our off-the-shelf listeners to in your book, NYPD Law and Order. What's happening in this book? NYPD Law and Disorder is about the embarrassing things that happened during my NYPD career and to other people. Um, the book opens up, um, the, the opening chapter is called Embarrassing Moments, and there's a story in there, and it's a true story. I had to use a public restroom, and I was in uniform. I took my gun belt off. I put it on the hook in the stall, and when I was using the bathroom, a bunch of teenagers ran into the next stall. One jumped up on the toilet, reached over and grabbed my gun belt, and I was in the fight of my life <laughs> for my gun belt over a bathroom stall. His friends ran into the next stall, and now it's a tug of war. They're pulling him over the wall. He finally let go of my my gun belt. They run out. I put my gun belt back on. I get dressed. I go running out into this food court area, and they were gone. And I said in the book, I says, well, what am I supposed to do at this point, call the police on myself? Um, (laughs) The the responding, I would have been the laughing stock of the Bronx had had I gone over the radio and asked for help. And I said, sometimes it's better just to suck it up and move on with your life. And I didn't write about um, that story until 30 years later. Wow. Okay. And so, so uh, is, is your book, you write about some things like that when that have a little com- comedy in them. And I'm thinking you've mentioned Barney, the, uh, Barney Miller. Uh, is it, are the books a little comical? And then is that, was that your intent? Yeah. Um, everybody, I mean, most cops or people in law enforcement, and I get it. I totally understand it. They write about the dark side. They write about, you know, horrific crime scenes that they've experienced or, you know, the, the bureaucracy in the department. I always thought that I was sarcastic and had a good sense of humor. I do write – there are dark stories in some of my books. But for the most part, I try to take a comedic twist to things and show the irony of things. Um, in, in, in that book, NYPD Law and Disorder, there's a true story about I was in uniform. I got flagged down by two, two nuns in their nun outfits, and they were young, and they had stolen Mother Superior's car. Mother Superior had gone away for the weekend, and these two nuns figured, well, let's take Mother Superior's car, go down to the Bronx, and go for a shopping spree. Well, they get their car towed, and I thought it was a practical joke by a couple of sorority girls from the local college. And these two nuns are like, you don't understand. We got Mother Superior's car towed. We don't oh have my $100 God. to get it out of the towing lot. Yeah, I, I had to lend two nuns $100 to get their car out of the tow lot. And then to get my money back turned into like a cloak and dagger thing because the nun didn't want Mother Superior to know. So I've got this nun calling my house, leaving me cryptic messages. And oh then I have to goodness. go back to this park to get my money back. So... You know, if, if, if people wouldn't believe this stuff happened, but it actually did. So when you, when you, when a reader is reading NYPD Law and Order, are, they, are these like little short snippets of experiences, or are there characters that readers will learn about and follow throughout throughout the book? Um, all my books have a common theme that I, I I don't write in chronological order, so my books aren't don't have a beginning, middle, end. So you'll go to one of my books, you'll open it up, and there's a chapter. And so that book, that uh, Law and Disorder has a chapter, Embarrassing Moments, and there's three or four stories about embarrassing moments that happen to me. Or there'll be a chapter in one of my books called Crossing Over to the Dark Side. That's about cops that went bad. Or there'll be a chapter in my book about what it's like to get hired by the New York City Police Department, the drug screening process and how things work. You know, a lot of people don't really understand they see cops walking around, but they don't know what they had to go through to get the job. And I poke fun out of it and, and point out the hypocrisy with a lot of things. Mm, now, now, why you mentioned like when some cops go bad. I saw a documentary, and this was about five cops in New York, 
and I, I forget when this took place, but they were involved with helping drug dealers because they were getting kickbacks from the drug money. So I wanted to ask you, why do you think that type in particular and other forms of police, whether it's excessive violence, why do you think police corruption hasn't been cleaned up and getting kickbacks? I'm thinking about the movie, uh, what was it, um, it was American Gangster, I think, with Denzel Washington. And oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Getting these kickbacks. Why do you think police corruption hasn't been cleaned up? I know as humans, none of us are perfect, but why do you think police corruption hasn't been cleaned up after so many years and so many attempts? And I'm thinking of another movie with Al Pacino, uh, Serpico. Why, why do you think it's still going on after all these years? I can speak about, I know what goes on in the New York City Police Department. I don't know what goes on in other police departments. So the New York City Police Department is the largest in the country. At any given time, we have between 30 and 35,000 members. So we hire in bulk, okay? So a small police academy class would be 250 people, a larger class, sometimes a graduating class of 2,500 rookie cops. The NYPD, when I got hired, they screened, I, I, I was under the impression that they screened us quite well. Even after taking the civil service exam, you're given a battery of psychological exams. I had to bring all this documentation to my investigator who went to my neighborhood. They interviewed my neighbors. They went to every person that I ever worked for, jobs. They asked, you know, why doesn't he work here anymore? Did he leave on bad terms? Was he a thief? I mean, they asked all the right pertinent questions. There was drug screening. And I'll say another thing about the NYPD that they get right. The moment you get hired, they tell you you'll be fired if you step out of line. And in the police academy, it was nonstop with police corruption videos. They brought in ex-cops who would serve jail time and and told of their experiences, what it was like to get pulled out and fired and go to jail. So, I mean, it's not like it's footloose and fancy-free. They tell you up front that if you screw up, we're going to prosecute you to the fullest extent of the law. We had prosecutors. That, that were tasked um, with prosecuting police corruption tell us that, you know, you step out of line, we're going to throw you in jail. Now, why it happens, sometimes you get, when you hire that many people, sometimes you're going to get a certain percentage that are morally flexible or just out-and-out evil that are waiting for the right opportunity or waiting to find that right person to come along that's going to help them do something wrong. And the NYPD, I mean, it's, I worked on cases as a detective and through wiretaps and through informants where a bad cop would walk onto the playing field. It didn't happen a lot, but it did happen. And once that happens, we had to call the Internal Affairs Division, and we had to work with them as far as sharing our intelligence that, yeah, this cop showed up on this wiretap. He was looking to help this guy do this. And, you know, it's not like we swept it under the rug. We 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 cooperated and worked with the Internal Affairs Division to make sure this, this member was no longer a member of the police department. Uh, well, from that point, is good. that Maybe they need to do more of that. And then you said, like, the uh, the trainings, and sometimes I know the pay is not the best. Uh, some people either looking for an easy job, c- come in there, and then if the city is – not so much New York, but maybe in another city, or maybe even New York, they're looking for police officers, and if enough enough quality type people want it, then you end up with uh, some folks who might not be the best, especially when they're put under certain amounts of pressure. Now, I was in the military, and they do deep, deep, deep background checks, then particularly right. depending on your job, but you still get people that come through, and you can see it in boot camp. That's when you really want to weed out the people. Like in, I know right. in, in the police force, they go through training, hopefully to weed them out that this is not a good fit. This person is not a good fit, so during the training, you, they they just don't make it. If you're not a good fit in boot camp, you're not going to get through it. And they make sure they test you really, 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 really hard. Um, so I wanted to add, you shared two stories. You shared the bathroom. You shared the one with the nuns. Can you share another story from NYPD Law and Order? And this is a story that readers find they tell you they simply don't believe it. They just find it too hard to believe. <laughs> well, I mean, in my book, uh, NYPD Law and Disorder, I mean, I have all sorts of stories about. So a lot of cops work second jobs, okay? So they'll have a second job either before they came on the job 
they, 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 they left one career to go into the police department, and then they find, you know what, I can continue doing this. So when I was, I was working in a precinct, there was this rookie cop, and he was an interesting guy. And uh, before he became a member of the New York City Police Department, he was a funeral director. I just found that fascinating. And, you know, he, w- he could run funerals, and he was also, an, you know, he also was a mortician. And I said, you know, I says, I know you joined the police department. I said, but, I says, you should really work in the missing persons unit. And he goes, well, what's that? And I says, well, you know, people turn up dead all over New York all the time with no identification. And what the missing persons unit does is they go to the morgue and these detectives fingerprint these unclaimed bodies and they try to match them up with people that are missing. And I said, you know, it takes a certain skill set to deal with the dead. So at my urging, he leaves the precinct and he goes to the missing persons unit. So I lose track of this guy for many years. And one day, like 15 years later, my partner says to me, he goes, I met an old friend of yours. I said, who's that? So he says the guy's name. I go, oh, where's he working now? He goes, no, no, he left the job. He's a dentist. I said, no, 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 he's not a dentist. He's a, he's a funeral director. He goes, no. He goes, he got bored working in the missing persons unit, went to school, became a dentist. He goes, I had a toothache. He goes, I go to the guy. I tell him where I work. He says, you know, do you know Vic Ferrari? He goes, yeah, I actually work with him. So I says, I'm saying to myself, this guy must have an IQ off the chart wow. to become a funeral director, right, a mortician, become a cop, become a detective, leave, and then become a funeral director. And my buddy goes, you know, he speaks very highly of you. He says, anytime, he says, he said, you need any dental work, give him a call. And I says, I think wow. I'm going to pass. And my friend goes, why? <laughs> I go, I know where his hands were. You know what I mean? Oh, like, my gosh. This guy, oh, my goodness. This guy has been, you know, moving around dead bodies and doing autopsies and, and, and embalming people. I don't know if I want him pulling out an impacted wisdom tooth. I think I'm going to pass. Oh, my goodness. You know what? And you you, you just – I I know cops don't get paid a ton of money. They don't, and that's why a lot of them will work overtime. But I had no idea that most of them also worked a second job. That I didn't know. That I didn't know. Um but I want to add, you mentioned this a little earlier. For our listeners who themselves, wherever they live, they might be interested in this as well. Just how bad is auto theft, not only in New York but across the country? It's like, oh, my gosh, just how bad is yeah, it? Sure. sure. So I wrote, I wrote a whole book about auto theft. It's called Grand Theft Auto, the NYPD's Auto Crime Division. That deals with my 10 years of chasing down car thieves. So in the 90s, New York City was averaging over 150,000 stolen vehicles a year. So it was like shooting fish in a barrel. If you're riding around in a police car and you had a little computer and you were running plates, it was like going to the casino, playing the slots. Eventually you were going to hit three bars and it was off to the races. So when I went to the auto crime division, our mission was to go after the guys that were putting in the orders for the cars, the guys that were chopping up the cars. Sure, we used to pick off the car thieves, but our mission was more going after the chop shops and the guys behind the scenes that were running these organizations. So if you ever saw the movie Heat with Al Pacino and Robert De Niro, we went after organized crews. We weren't as well dressed as they were in Heat. We were in jeans and sneakers. <laughs> but we would set up pole cameras outside of junkyards. We would follow car thieves around all hours of the night. Sometimes we would, um, during one case, um, we had thieves that they had stolen a BMW 5 Series they had swapped the plates on it to match another BMW that wasn't stolen, and then they put a business card in front of the VIN number in the window. So what that enabled them to do is that enabled them to drive around at night with this really fast, expensive car, drop off their friends, and steal more cars. So we got a wiretap. We, we, we got a search warrant for the stolen car, and what we did was in the middle of the night, I broke into this car. We took it to a garage. We installed a listening and tracking device in the dashboard. We had it hardwired, put the dashboard back. I brought the car back to the parking space, and then we were able to monitor these guys' conversations and where the car was going without having to follow them too close. Oh, my goodness. You know what? In Grand Theft Auto, mentioning that, do you share tips, Vic, ways that readers of the book can keep their vehicles from getting stolen? And if not, can you share a few tips on off the shelf, that steps people can take to prevent? I mean, there's some cities, you, if you go put gas in your car, 
you, you turn around if you if you're not careful, you, somebody's driving off in your car. Is uh, can you share any tips with people that they can help keep their car from being stolen? Sure, in Grand Theft Auto, there's a whole chapter about that. So you have to you have to lay. It's called layered protection. You've got to do a couple of things. So first and foremost, especially if you have an older car, you know what I mean. It, it's you don't want to spend a lot of money on a high tech alarm system that's going to wake up the neighbors every time someone drives past it or leans on your car. The cheapest and, and easiest thing to do is you put a hidden kill switch. It's either a button or a little toggle switch, and you have that wired to the electrical system or the starter, and you hide this button under the seat, under the dash, and you get in your car, you push this button, and then you put the key in the ignition, and you're able to start it. This way, if someone breaks into your car, they're not going to be able to figure out how to start the car because of this hidden switch in there. Now, they're going to know there's a kill switch in there immediately, but a car thief's biggest overhead is getting caught. So if they get into your car and they can't start it in the first 30 seconds, they're not going to hang around. Chances are they're going to be out of there because they're like, you know what, I'm going to the next car that's easy. I'm not going to be fishing around for a kill switch that may or may not be in here. So I, that would be first and foremost. Just it, It's like you can get one installed for under 100 bucks. Any mechanic would know how to do it. They, 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 just, they wire it to either the starter or the battery, so it, it disrupts the circuit. Now, with newer cars, that's why you're seeing, like, carjackings are up, because the newer cars, you can't steal them unless you have that key fob or unless you have a hacker that's able to steal that signal, but that's a, that's a whole other thing. Be, try to park your car in well-lit areas. Um, mm. You know what I mean? Um, keep it. Try to park it in front of your house as close as possible where you can keep an eye on it. Don't leave things in your car that's going to bring the attention to someone. It, it, there's so many different ways of with the older cars. They sell those. Um, it's like a metal box. Um, it's like it almost is like a chastity belt that you put over the ignition of the car and you throw a lock on it. And this is older cars that you know people don't. You know the economy's tight. People don't have a lot of money. And if you've got an older car, you want to protect it because more than likely you don't have comprehensive insurance on it. So. You know, if your car's only worth a couple of thousand bucks and it gets stolen, you're not going to get compensated for it in your insurance. So you've got to do everything you can to ensure that car isn't going anywhere. Even something as, you know, cheap as that club that they used to have, it still works. Yeah. It's, yes, can they, cut the, can they cut the club? Yes, but it's just it takes more time. You know what I mean? You want to make it difficult for a car thief. He doesn't, you want to make it not worth his while. Thank you for sharing those tips. And yeah, and then if uh, another safety tip I heard years ago is if you go into a store, you're going to work somewhere, and and it, it's, it, the parking lot is full. Try still try to see if you can find a place close to the uh, your office, or so you don't have to walk far across the parking lot at night. And then if so, maybe you have somebody from security. That's not even just car theft, but just basic just security. Now you give readers. Even more of an inside view of the NYPD New York uh, City Police Department in your book, NYPD Through the Looking Glass. You, you, you told us you were born in the Bronx, but what boroughs did you actually work when you were on the de- uh, department? Most of my NYPD career was spent in the Bronx uh, and Manhattan. Uh, and then when I went to the auto crime division, we were a citywide unit. It was 120 detectives. I worked out of a satellite office in the Bronx, and I was assigned to the Manhattan North team. But uh, we, we went anywhere where a case went. So if we had, for argument's sake, a chop shop in the Bronx, but our thieves lived in Manhattan, so we were going to Manhattan. It, 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 you know, we crossed a lot of boundaries in the auto crime division. We worked multi-jurisdictional cases. Uh, I worked a case with the Westchester County District Attorney's Office and uh, we had, we had uh, people in Brooklyn that were shipping 30 stolen vehicles a month to Shanghai, China. So, wow. Oh, my team- God. Oh, my God. I'm listening to you, and I'm, I mean, I'm sure our listeners are like, some of this stuff is shocking. This is like a global enterprise. That case was, I mean, so the cost, so we had Chinese nationals in Brooklyn, they were putting in the orders to a Jamaican middleman in the Bronx. The Jamaican middleman oh knew an unlimited amount of car thieves. 
So the uh, the main the kingpin was paying the Jamaican guy five thousand dollars a car. The Jamaican guy was paying his thieves anywhere between five hundred and a thousand dollars. The orders were for Audi A6s, and the cars had to be silver or or black. And these thieves would steal the cars. They would park them in the street for a couple of days to let them cool off, make sure they didn't have a tracking device like LoJack or a GPS. Then the cars would go into a warehouse in Brooklyn. In the warehouse, they would have a shipping container. Two cars would go into the shipping container. They would let the air out of the tires so the cars would sit lower in the shipping container. Then they would build a frame above these two stolen cars, and then they would draw, and then they would hoist one or two extra cars so they could get between three to four stolen cars per shipping container. Then the shipping containers would truck to Newark, New Jersey. They were put on trains. They were railed across the United States. And then from Long Beach, California, they were loaded onto cargo ships and shipped to Shanghai. So this case oh my really took off. Yeah, we, we had wiretaps on uh, the, the Chinese nationals. We had wiretaps on the Jamaican guy. We had wiretaps on the thieves. And while we're working on this international car theft ring, we quickly find out that some of our thieves are in the murder for hire business. And they're talking about whacking this guy and killing that guy. So once we took that case down, we solved between 13 and 15 homicides. Whoa. I I just don't understand the mind of a person. (laughs) Like a criminal Mine, it just, I don't, I don't understand it. Now, what years in NYPD through the looking glass, what years, I know you grew up, you said, like in the 70s, what years do you cover in the book for our listeners who trying to picture it? If, if somebody's in their 20s listening to the show, they probably don't have a clue what's going on back then. But what years do you cover in the book? And Tim, for our listeners who are younger, can you tie in the time covering the book to some major historic experiences that were happening across the world in a country that may not have anything to do with law enforcement? Yeah, so an NYPD through the looking glass, that's early on in my NYPD career. So what it's like, I, I got hired in 87, so I was hired right in the middle of the crack epidemic. So, you know, there's a story in there, I mean, my you know, right out of the police academy, I'm in field training in the South Rock, and there's like 30 rookies assigned to this field training unit, and they would give you a foot post in the middle of nowhere in the burned-out South Bronx. And, and I grew up in the Bronx, but, I, you know, I had never been to these places, and I'm standing out there on a the street, and there's abandoned buildings, as, as, you know, six-story walk-ups that are just been burnt out and abandoned as far as the eye can see. There's crackheads walking around with stuff they stole, you know, people's furniture and lamps and stuff. And you're a rookie cop and you're trying to figure it out. People are running up to me speaking in Spanish. Now, I grew up in the Bronx. I knew a little Spanish. I took remedial Spanish in high school, but there was no way, you know, I didn't understand. People were running up to me, asking me questions, looking for help, and I'm trying to figure it out myself. So it it deals with the 80s, mid-80s, and just what was going on in that time period and just – the crazy stuff that would come into the station house that, you know, people would just find, you know, fascinating. I, oh, my goodness. How, and I wasn't going to ask you this at first, how did you notice that working as a police officer that it was changing, that it was starting to change you? I know I told you my sister was a cop, and she said it was just, it's, there is a lot of stress. It's, it's stressful, and and then when you arrest somebody, you go to court, she says sometimes before you get to your car, they're back out on the catch in the bus. <laughs> what did I go through all that for? And she said the paperwork and then the stress. Did you notice that it was changing you? And and if you did, like was it a year in, two years? You're like, this is I'm starting to become a little different myself doing this work. I don't I don't think I changed as much as I adapted. So in New York, when you make an arrest, I mean, it changed a little bit over my 20 years, different procedures and things. But here's the thing. In New York, and I can speak to when I was active for 20 years, when you put handcuffs on somebody, you are resp- you're married. You are responsible for that person. So say you and I make a simple arrest. We're doing a day shift. We're doing a 7 in the morning till 3 at night. And 8.30 in the morning, we get a shoplifter. And... So we, we put handcuffs on them, we bring them into the precinct, you put them in front of the desk, 
You don't start searching him until the desk officer comes over. He says, you know, what do you got? We got shoplifting. He'll hand you a piece of paper, a pedigree sheet. You're writing all the information. Then you search this individual in front of the desk. The desk officer asks the guy or, or woman, are you okay? Do you need to go to the hospital? Are you feeling all right? Yeah, I'm fine. Okay, great. You put him in a cell. And then that's where the fun begins because now that you were right, I mean, every depending on the arrest, there's a mountain of paperwork, and, and it's in triplicate. After you get that done, you have to fingerprint them. Now, in the old days, we used to think we had to fingerprint somebody with five different cards, five cardboard ink. You know, it was messy. You had to roll their fingers on, 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 on cards. Nowadays, they have these machines in the precinct with these, um, it's got like a glass template on it. So you walk your prisoner up to the machine and you scan. You got, you, it's like rolling the finger, but you're rolling it on a glass template. And then the machine's got to accept the print. Sometimes with some of these people, especially street people or mechanics, where they work in, with acids and different chemicals, it's very difficult to print them because their fingerprints are basically obliterated or burnt off. So you're standing ah. at that machine forever hoping it's going to accept the guy's print. Once all the paperwork is done, you and your partner have to take – and that could take a couple of hours in the precinct. Sometimes the machines go down. Sometimes you can't print them. After hours, then you have to take them down to um, – the. Um, if you're in the Bronx, you would take the prisoner Bronx Central booking. And there could be a line of 30, mm. 40 people to get into that building. And once you get in, the, the sergeant there asks the same question. Ask the prisoner, are you okay? Do you need to go to the hospital? Are you feeling all right? Yeah, I am. Now, if he turns around and he or she says, you know what? I don't feel good. I want to go to the hospital. Guess what? The, the, the person at Bronx Central booking is going to say, take this person out of here and bring them to the uh. hospital and get them medically cleared. Now you go into a hospital. Now, when you walk in with a prisoner to an emergency room as a cop, you're standing there like everybody else. It's not streamlined. So unless this person is going into cardiac arrest or diabetic shock, you know what I mean, you are going to be in that waiting room like everybody else. And you can't leave. And they're not going to send relief for you like, hey, you know what, Ferrari's been with this prisoner now six hours. Let's get somebody. Nope. You are married to that person. Then you get oh out of Bronx, now you get out of the hospital hours later, you bring them back to Bronx Central Booking, right? You get done with the paperwork and guess what? The cells are full. No, you know, we, you can't lodge them here. Well, what am I going to do with this guy or this woman? You know what? Take them to the 112 precinct out in Queens. That's where we're lodging. I don't know where the 112 is. We'll get a map and figure it out. And the next thing you know, you and your partner are going to another borough with this prison that wow. you've been with for 13, 14 hours. So, People don't realize, like, once you put handcuffs on somebody, it's not like other places. You are married to that person and responsible for their well-being for that time. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that, 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 yeah. And every place is different. Every place is different. It's not the same. Every place has different perceived. Every place is different. Uh, uh, some places you cannot, you can, if you're going to be a police officer, like what my sister was, you have to live in the community where you're you're working you have to there's no way around it some places that's not the case so every place is different now back to your your books new nypd through the looking glass and before we get to the book about uh confessions of a catholic high school graduate and the grand theft auto nypd law and order and, and other books you've you've written what are your fellow Officers, particularly those who might have worked with you or anybody uh, any, anywhere in the country, another police officer who's read your books, what do they tell you they enjoy about the stories? I was terrified about the blowback I was going to get because I, my mindset was, oh, wow, you know, I mean, most of my friends are, are retired cops or at the time were still active, and I thought, oh, man, this is, I'm going to get some pushback. But they loved it. And the funny thing is now, my police friends are my biggest critics because I'll, I'll release a book and I'll start getting phone calls like, oh, I know who you're talking about in that book or you should have <laughs> written about this guy or remember when this happened? So now all of a sudden I've got all these book critics, you know what I mean, reaching out to me, wanting me to write about things that, 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 that put them in a story or, they, you know, and I said, be careful what you wish for. You just might get it. Mm, okay, so they're enjoying them. Now, have you ever thought about – I'm thinking like a TV series about having your books turned into movies or, or again, a TV series. And if not, or so, why or why not? 
I'd love it if someone in Hollywood picked up one of my books and said, wow, this is pretty interesting stuff and, and came to me and wanted to option my book to make it a television show or a movie. Yeah, I'd listen. I mean, okay. it's funny. It's just kind of this thing has just kind of grown. Yeah, yeah, and you keep writing them. You, you, They just keep coming out. So it started with one book, then you kept doing it, and another and another. Now we're switching gears. Your book, Confessions About Catholic High School Graduate, uh, it's it's a shift again from your other books. So I have one to ask you: Did you grow up in? Did you grow up in Catholic schools, or did you go like one year and say this is not for me? Did you grow up your entire uh, a, a secondary school in in attending Catholic schools? Well, I, I we were Catholic, but we weren't practicing Catholics. I mean, I, I went and made all my sacraments and everything, but we weren't you know holy rollers or went to church on Sunday. And I went to public school my first eight years, and the book opens up, and it's a true story. We're sitting around the dinner table, and my father goes, um, next year you're going to Catholic high school. I was like, what? We don't even go to mass. Like, what, are you kidding me? And he goes, you're a clown, and if you go to public school, you're going to be a bigger clown. He goes, so pick a high school run by the men in black. Are you kidding me? Like, I wanted no part of Catholic high school because early on in my life, I got chased out of a confessional. I was making confession, and the priest really didn't want to be there. I didn't want to be there, and I said to the priest in the middle of confession, like, Father, can we just wrap this up? You don't want me here, and I don't want to be here. And he chased me out of the church. So I was terrified of the priest in the Catholic church. So I wound up going to Catholic high school, and it was the best thing. that the Catholic high school and the NYPD were probably two of the best things that ever happened to me because I was a mischievous kid. I was always getting into trouble. Nothing bad. But just mischievous boy stuff, and that those two things kept me on the straight and narrow. Mm. So what was it like going to Catholic high school back then? I've heard stories about uh, the nuns and some of the, the teachers were really strict. And a, a guy I worked with, he grew, grew up going to East Catholic, going to Catholic school. He said back back when he came up, and I'm going to say, he was probably in the 70s, they would beat your knuckles with a, a ruler, and I mean hard. So what was it like going to the schools, and were they very strict and hard on discipline when you went? Well, the biggest difference, the first thing I noticed going to Catholic high school was you had to wear a uniform. So in public school, as long as you showed up with clothes and didn't smell too bad, no one cared. In Catholic school, I had to wear Slacks. I, you either had to wear a suit or slacks, a button-down shirt with a tie, and the school sweater. Your hair couldn't touch your collar. Um, so there, there was a dress code, which I found unusual. And I went to an all-boys school, which that was another thing I didn't want to do. But my father, and he was right, had I gone to, like, a, a co-ed school, that pro, I had enough distractions in my life. Girls, that, that would have been a hole on the ball of wax. So an all-boys school. They didn't go around beating us up, but if you stepped out of line and you were being a smart-ass in class and you didn't knock it off, yeah, you'd catch a crack. And I remember it happened to me a couple of times, and I found it humiliating. I really did. But at the same time, I, I realized, you know, looking back, I realized what was done. I didn't see anybody, you know, get stomped or no one was molested to my knowledge, but I just think that the discipline that was installed in the uniform, and it was different that time. Like, when I was a kid, I traveled across the Bronx taking, and I hate to sound like, you know, like your, our parents, I walked through a snowstorm, you know, uh, for 50 miles to get to school. But I had to t take public transportation across, you know, across the Bronx through rough neighborhoods, then get off, walk a mile after getting off the bus in all sorts of weather. And I think it was the best thing in the world for me because I wasn't pampered. My parents didn't pick me up after school. You know what I mean? I didn't have a juice box. It was, you know, it, I, I grew up fast. You know what I mean? It's like at 18, when I got out of high school, I, I had an idea. I was far from a polished product, but I knew how the world worked. You know what I mean? I didn't grow up in a bubble. And I think Catholic high school really, like, kind of hits you in the face, no pun intended, with what life is really like. Now, can you share, you talked about the, 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 the 
what the what the commute was like for you getting to the school. Can you share two or three experiences that you write about in the book? And then I want to ask you if it was cathartic cathartic for you writing the book. But can you share like a maybe two experiences yeah. that you share in the book? Yeah. So there's a story in that book. My Catholic high school got out at uh, say two o'clock. And there was an all-girls Catholic high school in my neighborhood that got out at 3 o'clock. So my friend lived right across the street from this all-girls Catholic high school. So what we would do is every day, this is like freshman or sophomore year, we would rush home, change out of our uniforms, and play wiffle ball in front of his house, which is right up across the street from this school, to watch all the girls from the Catholic high school get out. You know, we're putting on these feats of strength, hitting wiffle balls, and the girls aren't even paying attention to us. The funny thing is J-Lo was going to that school during this time. And J-Lo was oh just, my goodness. You know, Jennifer Lopez. Yeah. yeah getting... So we're hitting these wiffle balls over the fence in this all-girls Catholic high school. So then we would go into, we would go into the, the all-girls Catholic high school afterwards to retrieve all our wiffle balls. And the nuns politely and sometimes not so politely would tell us they didn't want us traipsing around in their English garden to get out of there. So we didn't pay any attention to them. So then they put a lock on the fence so we couldn't get our wiffle balls. So me and my – that didn't deter us. My friend and I used to hop the fence and continue to collect our wiffle balls. Well, they used to chase us. So you got to picture, you know, nuns in their nuns' outfits trying to chase two teenage boys around the grounds as we're trying to retrieve our wiffle balls. So we thought it was funny. And, you know, a nun's outfit isn't meant for the 40-yard dash, so they never caught us. So one day I hopped this fence – one time too often, and I'm collecting my wiffle ball, and this nun st- these two nuns step out from behind a tree, and now they're not in their nun's outfits. They're in pantsuits and Mary Janes. Oh, and boy. They, they point finger guns at me, and they go, don't move. And I'm just standing there. I throw <laughs> my hands up in the air because, you know, I mean, I just, I, was like, I froze. And I hear the nun going, I got him, come out. And all of a sudden, it's like a bunch of nuns converging on me. I'm like, uh-oh. So I take off running, and now I've got like a posse of nuns chasing me. I hit oh that my fence. God. I climb the fence. I start running, and I tell my friends, let's get the hell out of here. So he goes, what happened? I go, oh, it was awful. I just, they, were, they were all over me. I just, I just got out of here. So that was the last time I ever went into oh Preston High School to retrieve wiffle balls. Well, they were ready for you. They were, they were ready for you. Oh, my goodness. So... I have to ask you this. Oh, did you find writing the book when you relived your experiences in high school, was that like cathartic or healing in some way for you? You revisited those experiences as a man, not as somebody in high school, doing high school. Oh, no. My brother, actually, my younger brother kept telling me, you know where the book is that you should write? I said, what? He goes, about us. And I was like, what the hell is about us? What are you talking about? He goes, our childhood, our upbringing, all the crazy things that were going on in the Bronx when we were kids. You know, there's a story in there like a, 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 a kid, especially during the summer, we love garbage night because me and my friends, we would go around the neighborhood and pick through the garbage of things that people threw out. So we would get our hands on things that we had no business getting our hands on things. So if someone threw out fluorescent light bulbs, like those long commercial, you know, fluorescent lights, those uh-huh. were exploding lightsabers. So we would oh have lightsaber God. fights with fluorescent bulbs and we'd be hitting each other with those things. And in the 70s and into the 80s, vinyl albums were becoming obsolete, right? You had eight tracks, you had cassette tape. So we would find, you know, probably now worth a lot of money, people were throwing out their, their records and vinyl collections. We used to use those as exploding Frisbees. So we would get our hands on 45 and 78, and we're running around throwing them at each other. And, you know, you catch your friend off the side of the head with a record, and it would explode. And oh, my God. Frisbee, made, Frisbee was made by Whammo. So whenever you hit somebody with a record and, you know, whip one of those things and hit your friend, we go, Whammo! And the record would explode. <laughs> so, you know, it was just a different time. We didn't have video games. We made our own fun. Yeah, it was, and it was more outdoorsy with kids. Oh boy, I'm sure you guys, oh, we're we're a handful now. As I was researching for, as we're starting to come to the end of the day show, as I was researching for your show, I was 
when I was starting to read a study on confessions of a Catholic high school graduate, and then I'm thinking, he's a police officer? So I wondered, how in the <laughs> world did you go? When I think Catholic school, I think strict. You, you go to, I mean, religion, you walk in the line. How in the world did you go from attending a Catholic school to becoming a police officer? You talk about a stretch. How did you, had you at that point decided you didn't want to be a cop anymore, or how did you make that transition? Oh, I always wanted to be a cop. My parents wanted to kill me. They wanted me to go to college, and I'm telling you, from the age of five, all I wanted to do was become a New York City police detective. And my parents were like, that's great, but you should have something to fall back on. And when they realized they didn't want to go to school, my father wanted me to become a plumber and electrician and was trying to get me into those trades. The funny thing about my Catholic high school that was all boys, it was like a factory for civil servants. And my graduating class of 250 boys, 40 became New York City police officers. The rest became wow. firemen and sanitation workers. Yeah, it was, it was almost like the way Penn State produces linebackers for the NFL. If you get the yearbooks to my former high school, every year there's 20 to 50 people that are becoming New York City police officers. Wow, that's interesting. Now, 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 what have readers been saying about, because I'm sure your range of readers is broad here for this book, what have readers been saying about confessions of a Catholic high school graduate? Uh, most of the readers, if they're not from New York City, they're just blown away by it. Like, I can't believe that was going on in New York during that time period. People that lived in New York during that time period love it because it, it just brings them back to a, to a time period where things were different. You know, before cell phones and cable television in my neighborhood, like after dinner, everybody was out on the front porch. And the kids would be playing in front of the house and, and the old people would be talking. And I said, you couldn't get away with anything. You know, I would come home after doing something two blocks away and my mother knew about it because everybody talked. So it was like, get in here. And I'm like, what? I mean, there's a story in there. We had uh, uh, CCD on, on Saturdays, religious instruction. And it was snowing. And we figured, well, they're going to cancel. So we spent the day throwing snowballs at cars alongside the expressway. Well, one of the cars I hit with a snowball was my Catholic high school instructor who actually went uh... in. So she called my house. And when I came home, my mother was waiting for me with a high heel shoe in her hand. And I'm like, what's the matter? She goes, I know what you did. You hit Mrs. So-and-so's car with a snowball. You didn't even go. And she's chasing me around the house, putting a hole in the top of my head with a, with a high heel shoe. So it was just a different time period back then. Like, even without technology, people knew damn well what you were up to. Yeah. You know what? That is so true. It's so true. Now, after you published Confessions of a Catholic High School Graduate, did you reconnect with people you'd gone to school with that you hadn't heard from in years? Oh, yeah. And, and through Facebook, a lot of them found me. You know, it's um, they, they said, oh, wow, I didn't know you wrote a book about, you know, about our high school and stuff. So, yeah, I mean, with, through social media, people people have a way of, of reaching out to you. Now, what, what, uh, uh, what sharing and closing for our listeners who themselves might want to write a book? And I think writing is, to me, it's, it's entertaining if you love to do it. And I also think it can be healing. But what writing process do you follow? Do you do outlines? Do you, or do you just sit down and start writing? Do you go back? Do you, do you go back through pictures? Do you? What do you do when you sit down to start to write a book and you're staring at a blank screen? Well, especially for first-time authors, I, I suggest don't write in chronological order. So if you're going to write a mm-hmm. book about anything, right, you, you know what your book's going to be about or, or you know, or, or what stories are going to be in it. Don't start with the opening because that, that usually bogs people down and then they can't get past that and – before they know it, they've given up on it. I would pick a story in your book that's going to be interesting and fun for you there and, and go with that story. It could be the ending, could be the middle, maybe it's the beginning, and just start writing that story. And when you come to writer's block with the story, or and especially if it's something that happened to you or an experience, 
Talk it out with somebody. Call up your sister. Call mm-hmm. your brother. Go, remember that time? Or just a girlfriend or, or, or your friend and say, hey, let me tell you a story. When you speak, when you talk about a story, it opens things up and basically I call it like it's wiring. You're able to find the schematics of the story because sometimes you can say something better than you can write it, and that will open things up for you by telling the story. One of the last things I do before I send my manuscript off for a copy edit, I sit down in a quiet room and I read my book out loud. Thinks I'm nuts because I'm, I'm walking around the house and I'm reading it because when you read something out loud, you might read it to yourself. It sounds fine. Read it out loud, and you'll go, "Oh, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right." And then, it, and just a word or two changing will make make it more cohesive. Interesting. I heard that years ago. That's a good. That's a good tip. Or to, or you can read it, tape record yourself, and play it back. Because yeah, we do protect our works, and the reader will find it. The, uh, if a reviewer, a magazine, book review, a newspaper, they'll find what you, you you were missing. Now, can you share, before we close, three to four steps, Vic, that you take that you have personally found to be effective at getting the word out about your books? The biggest thing, okay, so once you get your book done, right, don't skimp on, don't skip on the book cover. People choose a book by its cover. It's like buying a bottle of wine. Spend the money on it. A good book cover usually costs about 500 bucks. I know it sounds like a lot of money, but you're never going to get your money back if you put together a subpar book cover. Invest the money on a good copy edit and a good proofread. Invest the money on having it formatted. And once you have that thing uploaded into the Kindle, pro, uh, into the Kindle uh, platform, the marketing aspect is on you. You have to market your book. And you have to be willing to put yourself out there. The last thing I wanted to do when I started writing these books was to do interviews. But I realized you can have the greatest product, book, anything in the world. If people don't know about it, they're not going to take a chance on an unknown author. So what you have to do is you have to make yourself interesting. You have to make your stories interesting. And that's when people will be willing to spend $10 or whatever it is and their time on your book. Ah, yeah, you do have to market it. And I'm glad you mentioned the book cover because it's easy to publish books. You can self-publish on Barnes & Noble. You can self-publish and get through a, through a printer if you do a paperback or hardcover. And you can also self-publish, of course, I think Kobo eBooks, and you can self-publish through Amazon. Well, a lot of people are just throwing books out there thinking that there are millions of people shopping on Amazon, Kobo, Barnes & Noble, and then they didn't they didn't get any sales. It is real important to make sure it's edited, formatted, and that book cover. That's that's really your 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 sale, top sales piece, your book description and your book cover. Those are very very important. And then you have to market that book. You have to just writing a book, even a great story, is not enough. So I'm glad you shared that. Are you working on any other books right now, Vic? And if so, can you give our listeners a glimpse into what you're working on now? Yeah, I'm writing another NYPD-themed book. Unfortunately, I don't have a title yet. The two things I struggle with as an author is the title of my book and the book blurb about about the book, you know, describing it. And it's the, it's the craziest thing because I spend a year of my life putting a book together, and it, it takes me a while to figure out how to share it with you. So those are the two things I struggle with. This book has got funny stories about it, about the NYPD, and there's a chapter in there right now I'm writing called Is This Legal? And as a cop, you're going to figure, and your sister could probably tell you this, once you become a police officer, friends, family, the man, woman on the street, they think you're capable of solving every or knowing every legal problem. And when people come up to you, they ask, is this legal? It's usually something they've done already, and they're looking for your support. (laughs) If you have to ask somebody, if you have to ask somebody if this is legal, chances are it's not. And there's a story in the book where a childhood friend comes to me and he work, he's a plumber, and he works for a small municipality, this town outside of New York. And he and a coworker, his his coworker works has a side gig working for this funeral home. And his his coworker gets this phone call and says, "Hey, can you do me a favor?" And the next thing he knows, he's moving a body from uh... fr- fr- from a deceased house, and they transport the body to a funeral home in the town truck. And he's asking me afterwards, what's that legal? 
So there's yeah. a whole chapter in there, people coming to me with these ridiculous things that they got themselves involved in. Oh, my goodness. Where can listeners get copies of your books, NYPD Law and Order, Grand Theft Auto, NYPD's Flying Circle, Cops Time and Chaos, NYPD Through the Looking Glass, and Confessions of a Catholic High School Graduate? Where can our listeners get copies of your books? Sure. All you got to do is go to Amazon, go to the book sec- section, and type in my name, Vic, V-I-C, Ferrari, like the car, and my book library will come up. All my, all my books are paperbacks. They're $10 or $2.99 ebook download. Okay. We are re- we've really enjoyed having Vic Ferrari on. He is a retired New York City police detective. And, again, titles of his books include NYPD Law and Order, Grand Theft Auto, NYPD Flying Circle, Cops Crime and Chaos, NYPD Through the Looking Glass, and Confessions of a Catholic High School Graduate. If you came in midstream on the day's show and you're like, oh, man, I missed the first part of it, no worries. When the show finishes streaming, you can go back and listen to it as many times as you want in in the archives and also share it with a friend or somebody who you think would enjoy listening to today's show. And he shared tips on how you could maybe help keep your car from getting stolen, which we really appreciate. So thank you, thank you, Vic, for taking time out of your day to be with us here on Off the Shelf this morning. As I tell our listeners, thank you so much, especially our loyal listeners and our new listeners. Thank you for taking time out of your day to be with us on Off the Shelf. Remember, set your calendar Saturdays. You're going to tune in to Off the Shelf to listen to more great guests like Vic Ferrari, 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on Saturday morning. As I always tell you, you are incredible. You are phenomenal. You are amazing. Go out and create a fabulous day for yourself. Dick, I'll shoot you an email with the link to the show when it finishes streaming. Thank you so much. Bye for now. Thank you, Denise.